millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And we have decided to come back again with another Around the World in 80 Plagues! Or more or less, somewhere around 80 Plagues. What is our plague today? (laughs) So let's go back to an ancient plague. We've talked about its cousin little mycobacterium leprae that causes leprosy or Hansen's disease. Today we'll be focusing on mycobacterium tuberculosis and a little bit on its cousin mycobacterium bulbus that causes the disease, tuberculosis. Where have we been that we've seen tuberculosis? Because I would like to talk a little bit about traveling internationally. After all, we are called travel medicine. Oh, certainly. My first guess would be probably India. Uh, India and Brazil have the two highest rates of tuberculosis in the world right now. Is that accurate? Yes. So when we think of tuberculosis, number one would certainly be sub-Saharan Africa. And then close behind is the continent of Asia. It's kind of a whole, but the Indian subcontinent certainly. TB is, is pretty prevalent, and I'm sure that I saw cases when we were traveling in India, and to be honest, every year I come back from a vacation and I don't have TB, I count as a victory. (laughs) Well, and that's true, you know, a lot of us have been to India and back many times. There are many people who live in India and don't have tuberculosis. Are they? (laughs) Are they really? It's hard to tell, and we'll talk a little bit about why it's so hard to tell. But it is a disease that it it likes to hide. So you can't always quite tell, oh, there's tuberculosis. But certainly when you've gone to places of such high endemicity, such as India for tuberculosis, it is reasonable to suspect that you should have maybe caught it once or twice. Well, like us, tuberculosis loves to travel, and while we're both infectious, Ah. doctors J, Santosh, and Ward are a lot less likely to kill you. (laughs) Uh, Somewhat less likely to kill you. 
rather than picking on only India, why don't I tell you about some of the vacation destinations of tuberculosis throughout history? A third of the world's population today is thought to have tuberculosis, with about 95% of deaths from it in developing countries. Right. But the very first references to tuberculosis in non-European civilization is, of course, India, and that's why I pick on them. And it's found in the Vedas. The, the Rig Veda, written around 1500 BC, called the disease Yaxma, and uh, the Athar Veda gives a description of scrofula, which we'll get to in a little bit, and basically tells people, move to the mountains, we don't know what else to do. A run from India to China next, and if you listened to our episode on Chinese medicine, any of that series, which I strongly encourage. Please go back. Huang Di Neijing describes an incurable disease called Huaifu, or bad palace, which today scholars interpret as tuberculosis. Now, you all know I loved the poetic descriptions of diseases in the Chinese medicine episode, so here is how Huaifu, or bad palace disease, is described in this Huang Di Neijing. As for a string which is cut, the breath is hoarse. As for wood which has become old, its leaves are shed. As for a disease which is in the depth of the body, the sound it generates is a hiccup. When a man has three states, this is known as the destroyed palace, which talks about kind of the very coarse breathing and cough often associated with tuberculosis. Right, and once again, you mentioned the falling away, the the wasting. Uh, so these were all universally recognized signs. And the information from all this told us that this disease kind of spread far and wide and stayed pretty much the same in all these populations that it touched. But let's move to the Western world, because tuberculosis isn't just limited to Asia and sub-Saharan. Right. It also made its way to Greece, and, in fact, the very first classical text is the histories of Herodotus, in which he relates how a Persian general, Farnoush, abandoned Xerxes' campaign against the Spartans due to consumption. That's right, he didn't make it into the movie 300 because <laughs> he was too busy hacking up his lungs. <laughs> It wouldn't have been as entertaining to see. Yeah, I, although given all the blood spatter in that movie, it probably would have been a very stylized tuberculosis. Oh, that's true. Yeah, extremely. If you want to think about a stylized tuberculosis, Braveheart, when Longshanks was dying at the end, that was most likely tuberculosis right there. I've got one other, well, I have two other locations, but one you know I'm excited about Go because ahead. we're heading to, say it with me, audience, Victorian London, <laughs> where, where tuberculosis really began to become affiliated with the name consumption and was actually seen as a romantic disease. Now, this is one of my favorite little tidbits of it. Victorians really took a huge amount of joy in suffering and death, <laughs> but not, not in the way you think. So, suffering from tuberculosis was thought to bestow upon the sufferer 
heightened sensitivity. And this all comes from the Victorian Book of the Dead, a lovely little novel available on Amazon. (laughs) But the very slow progress of the disease, which we will talk about, allowed for a good death as those afflicted with it had time to arrange their affairs. So the disease really began to represent spiritual purity and temporal wealth. Because of how the social classes were affected by it, you know, mostly the poor were dying. The upper class women thought that this was a romantic death. Oh, you have time to put all your affairs in order. And many young upper class women would purposefully try and pale their skin and diet to achieve that same consumptive appearance. This is also when handkerchiefs became very prevalent in society. And the British poet Lord Byron actually wrote and stated on several occasions he wished to die from consumption and helped to make the disease popular as the disease of artists. You may have seen people with it in Moulin Rouge, Nicole Kidman's character, or in Les Mis, such as everybody. (laughs) There was so much tuberculosis in Les Mis. So much tuberculosis. (laughs) Yeah, the, it's interesting that you brought up the Victorian era because this was after the Middle Ages of plagues, right? So uh, even though that we say around the world in 80 plagues, uh, you know, consumption, tuberculosis is a slow-moving, slow-burning disease that is contagious but sticks around for a long time. It doesn't act like a plague which wipes out a large number of people in a, you know, in a huge amount. So it really took in the West until the Victorian era for all these plagues to wash out before a slow chronic disease like tuberculosis could kind of gain a foothold in a population. But it was also able to do that because of urbanization and overcrowding, all of which was accelerating during this time. Now, we'll get into the causes in just a moment, but I do want to make one other very brief reference, which is more of a thing that we'll cover next season during our Halloween episodes. But in the Americas, and before the Industrial Revolution, so we're, we're going across the ocean and back in time just a little, Folklore often associated tuberculosis with vampires in the Americas. Really? When one, member of a, when one member of a family died from it, other infected members would be seen to lose their health slowly. People believe this was usually caused by the original person draining the life from the other family members. And if you want to see a fascinating kind of case study, look up the history of Mercy Brown and kind of learn the extent people went to in New England to kill vampires who were likely just TB victims and afflicted people. Wow, I did not realize that particular association. So as you can see, tuberculosis has traveled around the world and managed to affect everybody everywhere. Oh yeah. So Santosh, as our infectious disease doctor, why don't you tell us what causes tuberculosis? Sure. So we're talking about a subset of bacteria here called mycobacterium. These are all pretty much slower growing than the rest of their cousins in the bacterial family. Now, when we say, I'm going to interrupt oh, you yeah, for yes. a moment. Go ahead, go ahead. When we say slow growing, right. most bacteria divide every hour. So if you have one bacteria in a jar, in an hour you'll have two, then four, then eight, and so on. Tuberculosis, mycobacterium tuberculosis, 
divides every 16 to 20 hours. So really, you're looking at once, maybe twice a day. Right, exactly. So this is not at all the dividing time that we're used to seeing. And we'll talk about that a little later, because this is what makes it hard to, you know, grow in a Petri dish and actually recognize and run tests on. Right? With a fast-growing bacteria, you can rapidly test them and grow them. With a slow-growing bacteria like a mycobacterium, you got to wait and wait and wait. Now, Santosh, do you know why it divides so slowly? Oh, man. This is either going to be an awesome joke or an awesome fact. Okay, why well, does it grow so we're going to lead to a little bit of both. Okay, go. Uh, the mycobacterium has a very, very high lipid content right. or, or a fat content. And lipids take a lot more effort and cellular machinery to produce than proteins. Um, and also the bacteria doesn't hold on to stains as well because of the lipid content. So basically, the bacteria are too fat to move quickly. <laughs> this is what obesity does, people. This is what we're trying to tell you. Lay At off the a top cellular... Of at a cellular level, even <laughs> chubby bacteria yes. can't quite divide as fast. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah. So, yeah, the, they are neither gram-positive nor gram-negative that we'd say, although they're weakly gram-positive. This is important for identification. Um, they're in a classification called acid-fast bacteria, and that's... that is determined by how we stain them under the microscope. So this little bacteria gets around pretty much from person to person by cough. And they're small enough in teeny tiny droplets that rather than the big droplets where you cough and you talk about the common cold moving around and you're talking about big water droplets which can go about, you know, 3 to 12 feet in distance... These little uh, mycobacterium bacilli, or bacilli is the Latin term for rods, so that's the rod-shaped bacteria, these bacilli can float upon the breeze a long, 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 long way. So if you don't have adequate isolation from person to person, a single cough can travel, no joke, kilometers uh, or miles if you prefer but they can they can move in a hurry and so you can imagine in a crowded space one person catches it they even have a mild case of tuberculosis not even full-blown they start coughing it passes on and on and on um, and uh, that's that's one way that we catch tuberculosis, and one way, one reason why Josh and I are extremely scared of going to these endemic countries, and especially going to the places where we like to go, which is quite off the beaten path. Pretty rural, and yeah. yeah. And here's the thing: if somebody does become infected, it will usually take about three to four weeks before the newly infected person becomes infectious enough to transmit the disease to others. Because right. remember, these bacteria grow slowly. You need enough time. You don't get the bacteria and start machine gun firing it out with your coughs. Right. You you load a sniper rifle <laughs> initially, and then after three or four weeks, you have the belt fed ammunition. There you go. And, you know, it's, it'll be chronic, it'll be indolent. In most cases, it'll just 
uh, go dormant and the body will kind of close it off, but not before it is transmitted around and found some new hosts. So this is number one that we have to worry about. Number two that we have to worry about is through ingestion from milk. Uh, and we have our friend the cow to thank for that. So the, the close cousin of Mycobacterium tuberculosis is called Mycobacterium bovis and this bacteria can be found in unpasteurized milk this is one of the big reasons why we enjoy the process of pasteurization today and why many most all of good doctors will tell you to drink pasteurized milk rather than quote-unquote raw milk so aside from that sorry hippies raw milk Still not really great. Although, Santosh, do you know that milk is the fastest liquid in the world? <laughs> Are you talking about with viscosity? No, I- I'm talking about pure speed. And do you know why? Uh, when it's shot out of an udder? It's when you pour it, it's pasteurized before you can see uh, it. Oh, I missed it. Oh, that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty fast right there. <laughs> That was awesome. All right. Um, so before we move on, <laughs> before we move on for transmission, uh, I'll give you some other fun ways to transmit tuberculosis. Contamination of marijuana bongs. That'll hit your lungs and it will hit your eyes because if the mouth is too big and it actually covers your nose and your eyes the bacilli will float up and uh get onto your cornea and move into your uvea and that was the sound of a thousand stoners pausing oh yeah yeah before you pass it to the left people come on and of course through uh ritual circumcision There are a few other ways, but I wanted to mention those, because who doesn't love infection through ritual circumcision? I like that those were your two extremes. (laughs) You can catch it through coughing, circumcision, (laughs) or bongs. (laughs) And and unpasteurized milk, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the ones to really worry about are if you're traveling to an endemic country where you know TB is endemic, um, the the places we mentioned before, so rural sub-Saharan Africa, rural India, and the rural subcontinent of those countries surrounding India, meaning Pakistan, Afghanistan. Pretty much any developing country is going to have some degree of endemic tuberculosis. There you go. And your raw milk. So if you avoid those two, or if you protect yourself after going to those two, you are preventing the spread of tuberculosis. So, Santosh, as as we've mentioned, Ward and I are going to be going to Mongolia this summer. Oh. And one of the delicacies there that I will probably try against my own better recommendations is yak milk. And hopefully it will not make me do for which the animal is named. <laughs> I actually don't know whether or not the yak is an endemic carrier of Mycobacterium bovis. I do know about... Cal- you will find out. <laughs> it might be one that you may want to look up. I don't know. <laughs> there you go, folks. On the ground reporting, just for you. <laughs> If he comes back vomiting with intestinal tuberculosis, uh, we'll have a thumbs up there. Or a thumbs down, you know. But for all our joking, this can be a pretty serious disease. So before we get into diagnosis, why don't we talk about some of the symptoms? How are you going to recognize TB and how many different places can it get to in the body? And it is a lot. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the primary route of infection, as I mentioned before, is pulmonary. Someone around you coughs or even breathes if they have a heavy load, meaning that they're very sick. And it transmits through the air and you breathe it in. It works its way down to your lungs. And here's what's going to happen the majority of the time. It is going to get into the lung, and if you're a healthy adult, it will be swallowed up by one of the resident macrophages, which is Latin for big eater. And uh, these are the white blood cells which are lining the inside of your lungs and will swallow up the bacillus. And then if the bacterial load that you have inhaled is low enough, some of them will be killed, but the rest, as they are evolved to do, will live inside a beautiful little vacuole and kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm here, but don't destroy me like you destroy everything else. They have some evasion tactics, and then they'll form a little complex of bacilli within your own cells, and they'll hang out. And for some period, some percentage of people, some period of the time, uh, that'll be all the disease that you'll ever see. And you'll have what's called latent tuberculosis or asymptomatic infection. And if you weren't tested f with uh, a tuberculin skin test or another blood test, or if it doesn't form enough a big of a lesion to see on chest x-ray, um, you're going to have no findings whatsoever, and you may in fact die uh, a, a happy old happy age, never knowing that you had TB. But you can still spread it. At that point, early on, especially when that complex is forming and the bacteria are, are hiding out, you can still spread it. A little bit later on, your infectivity goes down a little bit, but you're, you're never completely free of, uh, of being able to spread it. Sure. So the most common place for TB to express itself is the lungs, and it actually tends to be the upper lungs, whereas most other lung infections hang out in the lower parts. TB is more of an upper lung kind of disease. <laughs> and it is very often associated with hemoptysis, which means coughing up of blood. Right. So this is what happens when those little bacteria form a big enough uh, lesion. And I love this term. It's a gone complex. So that area of your lung is all gone. <laughs> Gone is spelled G-H-O-N, uh, named after, presumably, Dr. Gone. So you have a primary focus, you have a lymph node nearby which will get infected, and then other lymph nodes will also uh, get infected as the bacillus actually travels inside of your immune cells from place to place. And what will happen is this gone complex will expand and become bigger, and it will erode through some of the lining of the lung, where the lung meets blood. Blood will get into your airspace, and of course that will irritate your lung and you'll cough. When you cough it up, you'll cough up blood. So we've got the gone complex, and we've got primary pulmonary tuberculosis. You are now all qualified Hollywood upstairs medical school physicians <laughs> because anytime you see any character cough into their hand or a handkerchief and you see blood, it is TB. And I have watched a whole bunch of film and TV series, and 
just trust me on this. If somebody coughs, it's only one of two things in Hollywood, <laughs> tuberculosis or cancer. Oh, yeah. Oh, especially that uh, that heavy, you know, <laughs> you know, that powerful stuff right there. But while tuberculosis is primarily a disease of the lungs, whether it's active or whether it's latent, it can also get to a number of other places it can get into your spine, which is known as Pott's disease. Now, an infection of any bone is called osteomyelitis and is very bad and can take months and sometimes years of treatment before it's resolved. It can cause varying degrees of weakness or paralysis, depending on where in the spinal cord it affects. Uh, but thankfully, Pott's disease is very, very rare, even in the developing world nowadays. Most tuberculosis tends to be confined to the lungs, but that's not the only place it goes. So besides the spine, Santosh, sure. where else do we see it? So you, you start in the lungs almost certainly, and you spread throughout the lungs. You can have a disease called miliary tuberculosis where those, those little bacilli will spread everywhere all at once. They'll get a shotgun pattern. It'll hop aboard every little lymph uh, vessel it can find and get to your lymph nodes and in a lot of little kids that we see in endemic countries it'll spread right around the neck are the paratracheal lymph nodes and the adjacent lymph nodes are up in the uh, neck the usual thing where people you know your doctor goes and feels your neck I'm feeling for nodes what and you say to them what are nodes and they're like, just calm down they're nodes but, so they are no need to worry about. They are lymph. <laughs> no <laughs> That's a good way. I'm going to use that. So lymph nodes are pockets. If you can think about them as as large balls of cells along the lymphatic pathway, where junk is accumulated so that it can be destroyed. So dying cells, bacteria, viruses when you get sick, um, cancer can go to the lymph nodes. In this case, the bacilli will hop on board the macrophages. They'll travel to the lymph nodes and they'll be able to survive there rather than being destroyed. <clears throat> and the lymph nodes will get big and inflamed. And this is called scrofula. So kind of thinking of like the scruff of a dog or something like that. Their neck will get swollen with all these bumpy, bumpy lymph nodes. The skin will sometimes change over them. It's called scrofula derma. And these lymph nodes can sometimes even fistulate, meaning they can form a tract to the skin and drain, because this inflammation which is going on is the body trying to destroy these goddamn bacilli that just will not quit. So the first thing that we think of is spread like this to the lymph nodes. Then spread to the rest of the body can be right next to the organs. So the heart is there, the pericardium. Um, it can go into the bloodstream, which is very scary, and you can get septic from tuberculosis. And the scariest thing that we actually think about with our children, um, especially now in sub-Saharan Africa where they are... HIV infected is into the central nervous system. So TB can hitch its way through the lymphatic system, through the blood vessels, to the cerebrospinal fluid surrounding the brain, and ultimately into the brain itself and the spinal cord, or travel adjacently, like Josh said, from the infected bone 
uh, of the spinal column and erode its way into the spinal cord that way. So that's one of the most devastating forms that we think of um, disseminated tuberculosis is getting into the brain. So tuberculosis, as we've learned, likes to travel not only the world, but also your body. So it is, it is the, almost the poster child for, for our show here. Oh. It will go anywhere, <laughs> anytime. Absolutely. Now, scrofula, Santosh, actually in Latin means little pigs. <laughs> okay. And oh, dear. that's because it would be a swollen pinkish mass, because remember, uh, you know, races other than white people were not invented until sometime post-Victorian era. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, so <laughs> they would look, the the lymph nodes would swell up like tiny little pigs fattened for market around the neck, and they would be cool, swollen, and with the overlying hair, the skin would acquire a bluish-purple color. There you go. So when it ruptured, it would look very ugly. So... That's in case you're ever wondering what scrofula actually means, little pigs. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I, I love the etymology of that. Uh, one of my favorite lines from a, a television show, Psych, yep. was the two main characters are a white and black gentleman, <laughs> and one says he wants to be a detective in, I think it is actually London, and the white friend tells him, you can't be a detective in this time period, you're black. And his friend responds, what, black people weren't invented then? <laughs> I love that comeback. Oh, I'm just so, like... Let's go into, now that we know a few of the basic symptoms, and again, this is known as consumption because it was a wasting disease. Right. This will suck away a lot of your body's resources trying to fight the infection, and you do become frail and weak and lose a lot of weight, another reason the Victorians romanticized it. Right, right. And the timeline that we're talking about for things to get really bad, just from pulmonary tuberculosis alone, say it never leaves your lungs and it actually kills you by destroying your lungs, we're talking about a course of years. So, you know, people will try to continue working and living, uh, you know, for instance, if they didn't have access to antibiotics, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As they did in ancient times, they would just keep, uh, you know, kind of trudging on. And believe it or not, they get a little better and a little worse and a little better until that bacterial load was big enough that it caused some major damage in your lung or another organ and you just could not go on anymore. So it was kind of interesting 
Uh, and I, I see now why it was romanticized that way. Because if you were wealthy and you happened to catch TB, you really did. You had this window of time where you could be awake and competent and get your affairs in order and slowly fade off into the sunset. You can also see why it may have been associated with vampires in the Americas. Right. Because, again, you would continue wasting away no matter what anybody did. And, you know, you'd become paler and paler as if you were drained of blood. And if you had scrofula or an infection, you are going to get some wounds on your neck. Or they are not going to look anywhere near as nice as bite yeah. marks. <laughs> they're, not, they're not clean. Now, let's go into diagnosis. I know I'm throwing a lot of history at you here, but I learned something... I learned a lot of things, but I learned one that was a surprise even to me. A French doctor, René Lenec, who died from the disease at the age of 45. He contracted tuberculosis while studying contagious patients and infected bodies. Mm -hmm. Not terribly surprising. That's very, that was very common, still is common. Right. One of the things that was surprising to me, and something I never even thought to question, is that the stethoscope was invented for tuberculosis to diagnose it. Very nice, yeah. So that he heard the so-called adventitious lung sounds, which are associated with advanced TB. Right. So he, he invented the stethoscope, which he used to kind of prove his findings and the correspondence between the lesions found on the lungs of autopsy patients. So he would take dead patients, open them up, and look at the lesions. But he would have also treated a lot of those same patients when they were alive and said, look, this is what their lungs look like, and this is why they're making those sounds. And while that first stethoscope was a little bit more advanced than a tin cup held up to the patient's chest, <laughs> this is you know, one of the tools most associated with the doctor, even where white coats aren't, even where the little helmet with the reflective surface that we only see in the 1920s films, you know, the stethoscope, more than anything else, represents doctors to people. And it was invented to deal with this worldwide disease to help diagnose tuberculosis. <laughs> and along with this, Lenek was one of the doctors who talked about lung sounds and heart sounds as well. So he wrote up some of the initial findings on this is how the heart should sound. This is how the lung should sound. I want to read this, Josh, just because while you were talking about this, I, I pulled up this beautiful essay talking about the history of Linnaeus in the 1800s. In September 1816, on, on a cool morning while walking in the courtyard, the 35-year-old French physician Linnaeus observed two children sending signals to each other using a long piece of solid wood and a pin. With an ear to one end, the child received an amplified sound of the pin scratching the opposite end of the wood. Later that year, Linnaeus was called to a young woman with general symptoms of a diseased heart. Both application of his hand to the chest and percussion offered little diagnostic assistance. Linnaeus was reluctant to start immediate auscultation, which is placing the doctor's ear on the patient's chest because of the age, sex, and plumpness of the patient. <laughs> In this moment of embarrassment, Lanik recalled his observation of the children's wood-borne signaling. It was this observation that inspired Lanik's invention of the stethoscope. 
I can't put my ear on that, lady. <laughs> so he actually did this. I then tightly rolled a sheet of paper on one end, which I placed uh, over the precordium or the chest, and my ear to the other. I was surprised and elated to be able to hear the beating of her heart with far greater clearness than I ever had with direct application of my ear. Oh, I love it. Laziness. <laughs> Advancing science for ages. <laughs> I'm sorry, my dear. I cannot put my ear on your plump, plump breast. <laughs> so let's talk about a few of the other things we use to diagnose TB these days. Now, uh, chest x-rays mm -hmm. are actually, by and large, I feel our gold standard for visual diagnosis. You know, we can suspect somebody of having it, we can listen to their lungs, but in order to confirm, we usually use a combination of chest x-rays and a blood test, which these days is a quantifieron gold, but used to be a PPD. Now, I threw a lot of terms out there, so Santosh, I'm going to pass the buck to you to explain them. <laughs> so, diagnostic tests for TB. This is a tough guy. So, I mentioned before that this was a slow-growing bacteria, which is really hard to culture. Even if you have tissue, you try to put it down on a culture plate and say, I want to know if that person has tuberculosis. Will tuberculosis grow on my little culture plate? couple of things wrong with it. One, you're potentially growing tuberculosis right there in your lab. Oh my God. So you have to suit up and you have to put on all the right equipment so you don't catch TB from your own laboratory isolate, which does happen and why we're very, very careful. But the other problem is it's going to be a week or more until you see any signs of growth and you can't do any experimentation on that isolate to see is this thing TB or not, such as looking at it under the microscope, etc., etc. So you're stuck here, you hold your head in your hand, you say, what do you do? You indirectly look for the presence of this bacteria by looking at the inflammatory response associated with it. You take a little bit of the protein derivative, purified protein derivative, that's your PPD, or a little bit of tuberculin extracted from the bacteria, and you insert a little bit under your skin. You wait now 48 hours to rule out like an allergic reaction, which will happen very quickly, like 8 to 12 hours, and at 48 to 72 hours, you read it. And if the T cells in your body have reacted and destroyed and eaten up this protein and said, ah, oh, there's a foreign invader here, that means that they recognize it, meaning that your immune system has encountered TB before, and the way that we regard tuberculosis, because it is so indolent and able to hide itself, is that if you've encountered it, you've got it. So that, along with the appearance that you have, so meaning your lung sounds, your cough, your history, and if we do a couple of other diagnostic tests like a chest x-ray or a CT, and you have a history of being in a tuberculosis endemic country or having been exposed to someone who has tuberculosis, now we put together the picture that, oh, what you have is TB. Now, you go out to a resource-poor country like we've both been to, Josh and I, and 
you're you're kind of on a hair trigger to make this diagnosis. Boom, you've got it. And you're in a rush also to try to isolate that TB as soon as possible from something like sputum. So you call it expectorated sputum and you get them to cough and cough and cough. So you get that deep lung sputum and you and you you know put it into a thing. You test it for antibiotic sensitivity um, because a lot of these days, uh, as we're going to talk about, Josh, we've got resistant tuberculosis. And you start them in antibiotics. In this country here in the United States, our suspicion is lower unless you have a strong reason to have TB, meaning that, oh yeah, I was just hanging out in my uncle's house and taking care of him for the last week because he's got tuberculosis and he just started on treatment. Or I just came back from rural India where I was treating patients with tuberculosis. So, Or yeah. I was in prison, or, or I was homeless, yes. or I was in college. Yes. All, all of these that we just talked about and Josh highlighted very carefully are part of a systematized uh, survey that we give every patient that we think has tuberculosis. If we get a yes on any of those, an uh, uh, those questions, we know which direction to go in for diagnosis. Now, it doesn't mean every prisoner or every homeless person or every college student has tuberculosis, but that we just have to have a higher threshold before saying that whatever infection is going on with them can be ruled out. Right. And in fact, that threshold is played out in the reaction around the, the needle where I poked you right under the skin with that tuberculin. And we say 5 millimeters, 10 millimeters, 15 millimeters. The larger it is, the higher our suspicion. But if you have a lot of risk factors, we're going to take a smaller amount of inflammation as proof positive that you have TB. We're going to take that a lot more seriously than if you have no risk factors. Now, taking that same test, but just doing a blood test with it, you isolate a person's uh, T cells. And you can do that by spinning out the red blood cells. Okay. Um, and you can actually run this same kind of tuberculin test, but feed that tuberculin to your T cells in a little vial instead of, you know, putting it under your skin. And now you look for those T cells to get angry and inflamed. And when they do that, they express the wonderful marker interferon gamma. They spit it out and they say, ah, get away from me, you horrible disease-causing thing. And you read the expression of interferon gamma that comes out and you can say, ah, that is above a certain threshold or below a certain threshold and you can say positive or negative for tuberculosis. So it takes a lot, guys, to diagnose tuberculosis. It's certainly not easy. It's not quick. There's no absolutes unless you have such a bad case where I can actually take it and grow it out by culture and say proof positive. Um, but in that case, I have a very sick person on my hands. Now that we've diagnosed the tuberculosis, mm. how do we treat it? Well, I'm going to start again with one or two brief historical ones. When we're talking about tuberculosis, people really didn't know how to deal with it. In the 1700s, an Italian, Giorgio Baglivi, reported a general improvement in people who suffered from tuberculosis after they received sword wounds to the chest. Oh, boy. Now, this was, and he said, well, you know, 
it seems to improve their breathing. We collapse an infected lung to rest it, and we allow that lesion to heal on its own. And he got so excited about this that he went around stabbing people, and a lot of them... (laughs) And a lot of them did, in fact, improve. And we still do this technique on occasion today. Are you kidding me? Uh, it is called... It, we no longer stab people with swords. Yes. But we do create a pneumothorax or a hole in the lung, and this is known as the plumbage technique. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, yes. This is used. I like that you're like, what? We stab yeah. people? Like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> It, it is used as a resort to to make a hole and to actually partially collapse the lung. If you need to surgically remove something and you don't have a really sophisticated OR, I personally carry my uh, medical sword with me at all times. But just <laughs> in case, so yes, a sword through the chest was a legitimate medical treatment back in the day. And more effective than another one that I know, Santosh, you were aching to talk about before, known as the bad touch. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean the royal touch. Royal touch. Uh, Yes. So initially, this touching ceremony was a very informal process. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not, you couldn't just be touched by anyone. No. You needed... You had uh, to be touched by royalty. Oh, endowed with the power of God's directive that you shall rule these people. Right. So because of the divine providence of kings, it was believed their touch could heal afflicted subjects. Now, individuals who were very sick could petition the court for a royal touch, and it would be performed at the king's earliest convenience. I want you to think about that for a moment. (laughs) Your Majesty... There are a number of sick people lined up today who wish you to touch them. (laughs) The king. Uh, I guess bring three of them in. And he walks up and goes, poke, boop, boop, boop. Cured. Yeah, right on the nose, just like that. Um, (laughs) I want to see that movie. Yes, yes. (laughs) I want to just see him lean up and go, boop, cured. (laughs) So, yes, we had that, and we had more stylized uh, royal touches as well, where um, they would actually wash their subjects. And this was, this was also that symbolism of, oh, I'm, I'm actually your servant as your king. I'm not just your ruler. I, I will care for you like a, like a father or something like that. Think about it. And Our presidents just have to kiss babies. Yeah. <laughs> Healthy babies, I'm assuming, as well. The rapid spread of tuberculosis across France and England meant that the informal touch had to become a more formal and efficient touching process. Yes. Yeah. So, touch, 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 move, touch, touch. Yeah. So by the time by the time of King Louis the Fourteenth, there were actually placards up on the palace, and you may still be able to find some of those today. As not so much in England, but I believe there are still one or two up in France that indicate the days and times the king would be available for royal touches. And these were posted and updated regularly. And uh, so they they could touch by proxy kind of thing? Uh, you know, I don't know if they just ran up and slapped everyone in a line <laughs> or if they had duly appointed touchers. This is, unfortunately, I did not do extensive enough research because I just giggled at the mental image. That is an awesome, awesome way to go. Um, 
So let's let's move on to modern treatments yes. before we wrap this up. <laughs> so, Santosh, is there a vaccine for tuberculosis? There is. Uh, there is Bacil Calmet Guerin, uh, which is the presumptive vaccine to tuberculosis. You inject under the skin, and if you know anybody who is originally from South America, uh, many South American countries, parts of sub-Saharan Africa or India, you will see this pockmark on their shoulder. That pockmark is where this BCG vaccine was put in, and it is fairly effective. It basically sets off an immune reaction um, and says, hey, now you recognize TB. Unfortunately, it's not terribly effective. People who get TB and who have BCG still tend to get TB. However, the rates of really bad tuberculosis when you add BCG as a control method into a population, it gets a lot lower. So uh, you're able to give BCG and, uh, and kind of stop the acquisition of tuberculosis from turning into really full-blown disease at a much higher rate. In children, getting this vaccine decreases the risk of infection by about 20%, and it decreases the risk of infection turning into active disease by about 60%. Right. And it is the most widely used vaccine worldwide. Yes. Uh, the immunity lasts only for about 10 years, but since tuberculosis is still pretty uncommon in most of Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., we really don't give it here. Right. So if you tell your travel doctor that you're going to go and live in an endemic place for a long time, then we still can get you BCG, mostly for kids, but also for adults, what you're going to see is a protection about 80% against meningeal. So TB going to your meninges in your, in your brain, in your spinal cord, and miliary tuberculosis, which means where the bacteria just spread everywhere in your lung. One thing it does do, Josh, is it confuses this skin test that we have that I talked about. Um, so it can be a little bit confusing when a person says, oh, I don't have any symptoms, but I've just come back from living in a place which has TB, but I also got BCG. And there's been a lot of controversy as to, well, okay, if they have a positive skin test, which to me would say they have tuberculosis, but they had BCG before, does that mean that the skin test is because of the BCG, the vaccine, or because they have TB? And, our and that's why we're phasing out the skin test in favor of the blood of test. Of the blood test altogether, called an IGRA, or an interferon gamma release assay. So it's, it's better, it's certainly better, but the consensus right now is if you've been exposed to TB, as in you've been around a lot of people with TB, whether or not you've had BCG, if that test comes back positive, we're, we're saying that you have, at, at the very least, latent TB. Now, the last thing we'll talk about before wrapping up is, let's say you do have active tuberculosis, you are treated with what is known as RIPE therapy, mm -hmm. and that has been really in place since about 1944. Um, streptomycin was the very first drug. Now we use a four-drug regime, 
of which you are supposed to take all four drugs for, I believe, the first two to three months, and then just two drugs for the remaining six. Right, and this is really for sensitive mycobacterium tuberculosis, and I don't mean sensitive like, oh, it really gets me. It doesn't have trigger warnings. (laughs) I mean antibiotic sensitive. So if you have been to a place such as India, um, this particular regimen is no longer looked at as primary because you really want to worry about multi-drug resistant or extensively multi-drug resistant bacteria. So I, I think it's a fantastic start and certainly the duration of everything and the doses of everything um, has varied from country to country and from opinion to opinion as our evidence and study of this disease has gotten stronger. But more than likely here in the United States, if you come back from, say, sub-Saharan Africa and you're feeling a little down and you have fevers and a cough um, and you're identified as having TB, more than likely you'll be started on this RIPE and your doctors will do their very best to try to isolate that tuberculosis from your lungs to make sure you don't have drug resistance. Right, and it's very important that people who do have TB are treated, finish the medicine, and take the drugs exactly as they're prescribed. Because if you stop taking the drugs too soon, you can become sick again. If you don't take the drugs correctly, the bacteria that are still alive become stronger, faster, better, and more resistant to those drugs. And you may have seen some of the reports of superbugs showing up, and TB is one of those we really worry about because we don't want this to become sort of that romanticized disease again that nobody can treat. And as fun as the idea is, I don't want to start putting swords through a lot of people's chests. <laughs> no, no, although I'm sure we can think of a few that deserve it. No, nope, that's not right either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, Santosh, you know what we haven't done in a while? Oh. I mean, well... This is so that's kind of everything you need to know about TB but yeah. I just realized we've gone almost half our season and we've neglected to include any just the tips. We have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I know some of you have been aching to hear our travel stories as well as the medicine. And Santosh, I believe you have a just the tip for us today from sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, yeah. So we should definitely tie this into tuberculosis, and I can in a small way. So I had the honor of traveling to Botswana as a medical student, and uh, I got to go to Princess Marina Hospital, which is right there in the capital. Um, It is a fantastic place to work, um, beautifully well-put-together hospital. They have a residency program on site, and they have an HIV, uh, what they call a center for excellence. They have set up a place where everyone from the surrounding area can come get treated. And so this is for my friends who are medical professionals and who are looking for a place to train. What about for tourists who are not going to travel to a country to explore their hospitals? Oh, absolutely. So my very, very favorite spot was the Okavango Delta, and this is a part of the Serengeti. It's one of the world's largest inland uh, deltas in the northwest part of the country. And this is, you can go there on a small budget and explore and see 
you know, just your usual, your lion, your lions and your elephants and all your big, beautiful animals. Or you can go on a much larger budget, and they have tourist spots in there where they'll set you up with your own tent with all the creature comforts of life. But that southern part of the Serengeti, which is fed into that Okavango Delta, is very lush with life. It's absolutely beautiful. Because it's in Botswana, which is an extremely stable country, you can also travel there without the fear of, you know, poachers roaming around and, uh, well, frankly, political instability that is surrounding a lot of that area, including neighboring Zimbabwe. So this is kind of a little oasis of peace to where you can actually go in and, and really enjoy yourself as a tourist if you want to go kind of on the beaten path where you're taken care of. A couple of other things about Botswana that I love to always say, this is one of the countries where I've been to where with no fear at all, I've drank water straight out of the tap. They have in the cities just a beautiful, beautiful sanitation system, water system. And because the water is so clean, the roadside food, which some of the English-speaking people will just call pots, they, you know, you just go over and get hot food right there, and it's cooked with cleaned water and very clean. A lot of it is vegetarian, vegetables and meats, and you can just enjoy and taste the native food without a lot of worries that we talk about here on our podcast. So there you go. Our just the tip, Botswana actually has water clean enough to drink <laughs> from the tap. In, in Gaborone, in, in the capital. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. <laughs> and you talk about the dangers of nearby Zimbabwe, which is where I spent my vacation. Oh, boy. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's really, you know... I'm, I'm trying to be as fair and equitable as possible, but the the truth of the matter is is that unfortunately there is much civil unrest in the south of Africa as there is throughout much of sub-Saharan Africa, and Botswana has somehow maintained a little uh, bit of peace. It is also on completely the opposite side of Africa from all the Ebola scares. It is. For those of you. <laughs> for whom that is a concern. Right. So this is not the western coast. Um, this is down just north of South Africa. So you are away from all of the endemic hemorrhagic fevers, such as Ebola and Lhasa. If you want to learn the uh, native tongues of Setswana, I totally would go for it. It's an awesome, awesome language. And if anybody at all is listening from Botswana, Dumelama, which is uh, the hello. Dumelama. Well, you say Dumela, and then you attach either a ma or a ra at the end, depending on who you're talking. Dumela ra. Yeah. <laughs> Usually not so aggressive. They're a very sweet people, the Setswana. I'm very friendly. <laughs> very friendly. Well, folks, that is our show this week. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We love to hear your comments, concerns, and feedback. We also now have a Patreon page, links provided in the show notes, where if you'd like to give us money to help improve the show even more, that'd be great, and we would love you even more for it. There's all sorts of rewards attached. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure, and 
We are rapidly approaching the end of our season, though we still have at least another few episodes left till we complete in August. So keep listening, tell your friends, please leave ratings and reviews for us on iTunes or wherever you obtain your podcasts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.